Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Sencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Sencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Sencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Sencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Sen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Sen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be having the battle of accents here. So we got the uh, the UK accent, we got the Spanish or Spanglish, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I think that we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, financing, about coming to the US with absolutely nothing and being able to make it. Uh, and I'm sure that you're all going to very much enjoy the episode today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Alas, dear Maclean Foreman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane here, Alas, there. So um, grew up in UK, in Southeast London. So how was life growing up? Yes. Well, uh, yes, I, I grew up in Southwest London, actually, in you know, living above a retail store. And I uh, was very, very fortunate to get an opportunity to c- come here to the US. You know, what led me here was university. So I was able to. Uh, go to Harvard undergrad, Harvard College, and uh, there I studied economics and ran track, and I was captain of the Harvard track team. And why coming to the U.S.? Because there in in London, I mean, you have amazing universities as well. It's a great question. Uh, it's a I like the question. <laughs> yeah, so I was actually running for the Great Britain athletics team, and uh, you know, I was one of the top athletes over the 800 meter distance. And uh, I was really set on training for the Olympics and, and going to stay in the, the UK. But my high school math teacher said, 
hey, in the US, you can continue your athletics, but perhaps also have an opportunity to get a great education as well. So I literally went on a dial-up modem, and I remember this, Googled top universities in America, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and I got the prospectuses, and I just looked at them. And, and in my mind, I really wanted to go to Stanford. Um, it just it just seemed, you know, sunny, California, and the coach of, of Stanford didn't really write back to me. I ended up, you know, doing quite well in the, the national championships uh, for 800 meters. And unfortunately, the Harvard coach wrote back to me and the rest is history. I, I remember, you know, actually getting a chance with the acceptance letter and thinking to myself, well, well, do I really even want to go? My mother said, just go. Worst case scenario, you can come back. So it's always been a, a holiday for me here. And, and it's a great mindset. Just just keep the holiday going. And as you're talking about mindset, you know, how would you say that the being an athlete and running, how do you think that the discipline to be able to be on shape, to be able to be able to run those competitions, what do you think that that discipline, how, how do you think that has shaped up the way that you approach whatever is in front of you, whatever challenge you have in front of you? Because I think that it's pretty similar to also being an entrepreneur, the way that you also need to use that discipline and and the mindset that you apply. So how would you say that that has helped you to really be who you are today as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. I think you're spot on. I think what what that sort of um, endeavor, the athletic endeavor, teaches you discipline, running in particular. What you put in is what you get out. Of course, there's natural talent, but you cannot be a world-class athlete. You cannot be aspiring to be an Olympian if you don't put in the sacrifice, put in the effort, put in the energy. So that's one. I also think it's incredibly valuable to understand how challenging it is. And, you know, it, it, it's a roller coaster. And, and I always say that to our team of, of employees today. And it, it's not a linear path. And it's absolutely the same thing with running, with injuries, with bad races. I think that applies to all sports. So, you know, that mindset is is in, in incredibly important. And there are a lot of analogies that you can pull across into business and in, in, in particular entrepreneurship. What I like in particular about running is it's answering a question, a doubt, you know, what is the human limit to me? And I think that's also the same thing with a business. It's, can we always get better? Yes, of course we can. Is there always a way to be more efficient? Can we grow larger? And, you know, the sort of the no limits mentality is, is just critical. And in your case, I mean, you came to the U.S., you were running, you were at Harvard. How do you end up getting into this whole entrepreneurial journey? Well, it, it really was, you know, in the spirit of, of coming over to the U.S. with not very much. I came with a couple of bags. Um, I actually didn't even have my parents drop me off at Heathrow Airport. I said, look, I'm going to just go. I'm going to grab my bags. I'm going to go on the train. I flew over and uh, got on the underground here in Boston, which is called the T, and came to the, the, the Harvard freshman dorms. It was quite shocking to me in a nice way of, of just like how, how much of an ordeal it, it is with, you know, proud parents moving their, their, uh, their sons and daughters in. And, and one of the most intimidating things was just the amount of resource you needed, um, you know, thousands of dollars for textbooks. So I was actually, the first job I ever had here in the US was bathroom cleaning uh, on campus. And then, you know, there was an, actually an opportunity to sell 
products. And, and that came about because I had a watch that was given to me by the uh, Great Britain track team that broke and I ended up calling up the manufacturer. And it was one of those things that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's an auto attendant. It was like, uh, press one for consumers, press two for these. And I just pressed two and I said, what does it take to become a dealer? And it, it said, you need to p place a purchase order. I placed a purchase order. It was a very interesting time in e-commerce because we're talking 2001. And I think you still have this problem. You know, what are the channels? Like, is it brick and mortar or is it online? And at that time, the, the manufacturers didn't really know how to manage the online channel. So I was able to get a, 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 a basically a dealership, a wholesale contract with zero overhead because I was selling from my dorm room and built a website. And it was all about the products are for athletes by athletes. And this is before Google Shopping, before Amazon, before any sort of real shopping website. And it was very well indexed on Google. And I went from being a very poor student to a, a less poor student. And, uh, you know, it was just got the buzz and, and the thrill and the adrenaline of, of selling products that I, that I loved. So then let's talk about, you know, whatever happened with this, with this business. Because, I mean, first company, first exit. I mean, it's not bad. Well, it was a long journey, and actually what I'm doing today is a direct connection to that, and it's taken quite a while. Um, you know, I was one of the first third-party sellers on Amazon back in 2003. Um, so that, that, that website that I built, um, I just kept selling products that I, I liked. Um, there were some lucky breaks, which relates to just products and trends. Um, one in particular was Timex partnering with Garmin to launch the world's first speed and distance watch. For me, it was mind-blowing, a product that you could wear that would precisely track speed and distance. Every other product was a pedometer-based technology. Of course, today, you know, smartwatches all have GPS built in, or the majority do. And, and that was the, and a, a super exciting one. Every time anyone Googled Timex speed and distance, you know, you, you were getting me come up first and, you know, that product took off. So I just kept adding on different brands. Um, I, I uh, called up the sunglasses. I called up Nike. I called up and, and these manufacturers would show up at my dorm room, uh, Kirkland House, and um, they would be like, That's, wh wh what, are you, what are you doing? And I was just this college kid. And I just said, well, I want to sell your products. Some of them even said, well, you have to have a brick and mortar store. And then I went and rented a brick and mortar store. And then called them up again and said, here I am. Um, so I was able to scale pretty quickly, but it did have a lot of challenges because I, I actually got to a point where in my mind, I was just telling my friends, I'm making a million dollars a year, but really the difference on, in retail of making and gross margin are two different things. So I didn't track my costs that well. Um, so I actually struggled right when I was graduating college. I ended up sleeping in the office. Uh, you know, I'd overextended myself and I now had overhead, you know, so it, it was a not a linear path, but I was able to then exit out on a two year earn out deal um, and really able to really think about an opportunity to, to, to do something new, which is, you know, what led me to this. So then let's let's talk about what led you to this, because the most immediate one, you know, you did another business that was Trainio, right? And Trainio was, you know, the absolute like most immediate step before you got started with the with the business so so what what was essentially training about because i mean all, all another another company here and another exit too so good stuff so training was a good one what i wanted is when you bought the watches a place to get a training program 
and I had this vision of uh, an online training, you know, program. Um, and I was really passionate because I, I just didn't, I could see some competition coming to sell the same products and I wanted a interconnected experience. And uh, of course, you know, with Peloton and, and such like, I mean, that, you know, you know, it's such a huge multi-billion dollar industry today. I actually did meet the founders of Fitbit back then. Around the same time as Trainio, there was uh, Runkeeper, uh, which ended up selling to ASICs for about $100 million. Um, Matt and I run, uh, ended up selling to, I think, Under Armour for over $400 million. I made a little, I was just a little bit too early. Um, we didn't, you, we didn't uh, execute on mobile. It was before iOS launched. Just to give you a time frame, YouTube hadn't even launched. So I was actually paying. I, I, I filmed myself w- with a camera and actually used a, a different non-YouTube service and actually put that into uh, uh, this content. And just to give you a sense of the time frame, I think the vision was good. The execution wasn't, wasn't up there. But I think it, it was the first foray into building complex web applications, you know, dynamic web 2.0 applications. In fact, at that time, I was looking for someone to help build it with me. And I emailed Mark Zuckerberg, who was also in Kirkland House. And he said, hey, you know, thanks for thinking of me. I'm pretty busy working on something. And, and that something became Facebook. So I was one of the first, you know, 2000 members of, of Facebook at the time when I launched on campus. And, and really what ended up happening is, you know, I, I ended up exiting out Trainio to News Corporation. Um, you know, they bought the the technology to white label for for one of their properties in the UK called the Times of London, which is obviously a a, a world renowned newspaper. And that was them pivoting into digital. I ended up selling my core e commerce business. But what was really interesting from that 2003 invitation to be one of the first third party sellers on it, on Amazon to 2010, I could see that it was much more efficient to sell goods off of our website and more efficient to sell them on Amazon. And of course, today, Amazon has 40% market share of e-commerce. So what I was able to see is a little bit of that early shift as Amazon Prime was launched as Amazon Fulfillment was launched. So I actually took the some of the engineering team and uh, I, I did a lot of the design myself and I took some of the, the, the group from Trainio to start working on optimization for Amazon. And that was a, a big idea. And that led to building really an agnostic view of Amazon as a trading platform. Um, I ended up spinning that out and calling the company Taker Metrics, which is which is what I'm building today. Taker is the Japanese word for market price. I, I studied econometrics college, and what Taker Metrics does is it is it empowers every seller on Amazon, every seller on Walmart, every seller on anywhere around the world to have AI and optimization. Amazon's on one side of the table: lowest prices, maximum selection and convenience. Those are the Jeff Bezos mantras for consumers. But I've lived the pain of, of the seller. And they're on the other side of the table, struggling with inventory, struggling with supply chains, sl- struggling with optimization. And that's what we're giving them with AI. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone 
is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then in this case, how do you guys say make money? What's the business model? It's a partnership with every one of our, our, our customers. So we have some of the world's largest brands like Lego. Every piece of Lego around the world is optimized through us and that's on the upper end. You know, that's one of the outliers and super exciting for us. But what I find interesting is the hundreds of thousands of, and millions of Amazon sellers and direct-to-consumer entrepreneurs that are able to go to market. It's really the American dream. And we've met incredible entrepreneurs and helped them go from zero to multi-millions. Uh, as an example, Solo Stove, um, you, you may be familiar, everyone in my neighborhood has one. I'm in, in the, here in the Northeast. They just went public, started by two brothers, you know, just as a, as a product uh, that, that is a you know, smokeless fire pit they are able to go to market with Amazon, with Shopify, build a multi-billion dollar business. And um, you know that's what gets us up going, uh, gets us up in the morning as a company. That's really our core focus. And uh, we have now 300 employees uh, around the world. We have $10 billion worth of transactions um, through Amazon and Walmart. And to answer your direct question, we take a small percentage of the transaction and if you're really small, we don't take anything. And what we're trying to do is take the world's best AI engineers, you know, folks from Amazon, Facebook, Compass, Expedia, and build a piece of software that can help sellers make better decisions on the other side of the table. Got it. Now, in terms of capitalizing the business, how did you guys go about capitalizing the business? Very early on, uh, you know, it was bootstrapped. And, uh, you know, I was able to finally... You know, after all of those entrepreneurial years, all of those challenges with a pretty capital intensive business retail. And that's one of the things that really caught me out um, just because of the challenges of in inventory turns, gross margins, sale inventory. But I was after the I exited out of uh, that, that, that first retail business and Trainio, I finally had a little bit of money. And I really wanted to get to a position where the, the product was stable. And we didn't really focus until 2017 on building a software company. In 2017, it was clear that you could a multi-billion dollar SaaS company because the market is so large. I got a ton of rejections from VCs. I got a ton of rejections from VCs. Every VC came up to me and said, Amazon's going to eat your lunch. Why can't Amazon do this? And I'm thinking to myself, 
I've been an Amazon seller since 2003. There is no way Amazon's filling this gap because Amazon's optimizing for its profitability. That's even a famous phrase from Jeff Bezos. Your margin is my opportunity. And, you know, Amazon has over the years taken more and more out of the transaction. Today, it's about 30 to 40% take rate. Wow. So the idea that you would ever trust Amazon to run your business is is just crazy. But anyway, VC saw that. VCs also looked at, you know, some of the technology that we, we're using for ad optimization and said, look, you know, we, we think this is an ad tech company. We've seen flaws in this category before. But what they missed is this vision that we have to power all the levers, pricing, inventory, advertising. And you need those things if you're selling on Amazon. And what was incredible is I ended up meeting the head of econometrics at MIT, Dr. Jerry Hausman. You know, Jerry really has been the godfather of econometrics, the field of econometrics. And, uh, you know, Jerry uh, was, able, was able to meet him, which was an incredible experience. And, uh, and he just fell in love with the business. He said, I've been doing this type of stuff for Home Depot, Starbucks, Tesco's in the UK, and you're sitting on a gold mine because you can get this structured data and build the brain. And he was just very intellectually stimulated. So once Jerry invested, the table shifted. You know, we had partners from Balpost, the hedge fund here in Boston, high net worth individuals invest. And it was so cool to have that as the first investor. And, you know, we've just, uh, we've raised three rounds of capital since then. So I guess in this case, I mean, and you're talking to it, it seems like when Jerry invests, it's like signaling happens. So how important is signaling when you go out and raise money? It's a great question. You know, I, I, I still don't have a full understanding of the entire, you know, VC map. I, I think one of the challenges as an entrepreneur, you may only de do, you know, hopefully not that many deals in your lifetime. Whereas if you're on the other side of the table, you know, VCs are, are looking at hundreds of not thousands of companies. So I think there is always a question for a, an entrepreneur, is there a playbook? What should the playbook be? Do VCs add value? Does brand matter? You know, does signaling matter? And um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily there's a, a set formula. Um, and, you know, the, the more I, I, you know, work through it, the, the, the patterns of, you know, who is the partner, who is the actual individual that is going to help you, I think is the most important. That's the person that's sort of in the company with you. I think, you know, going back to your question regarding Jerry joining, I think that that created really the right type of investment in the beginning that we were very lucky because, you know, we didn't create a board at the time. We structured it as a convertible note. Um, we were talking to an investor and a set of investors that were associated with that lead who could see the bigger picture, which gave us time. So I think more than signaling, it was the way that Jerry understood how big this could be, even though it was very early. And and just buying into the vision. I think with SaaS in particular, you know, there's a huge emphasis on why it's attractive metrics. And I just feel, and that still happens today, maybe that's the tension, right? You know, show me proof versus promise. And, and, you know, obviously as the entrepreneur, you're wanting to be valued more on promise versus proof. But with a SaaS company, it's like, you know, show me your metrics, show me exactly how you're performing. And I think Jerry's like, you know, we're still, he's our scientific, scientific advisor today. We're still talking about, 
how do we think beyond? How do we think in the future? And I think it's more his mindset was valuable, actually, than the actual signal. Signal's really cool, though. I mean, Ben Bernanke was one of his students, and the stories he has and the stuff he's done in his lifetime is amazing. And when you go from, let's say, dealing with individuals to uh, getting people enrolled at the level of Intel, I mean, getting Intel as an investor is pretty big time. So, so how does it transition when you are looking at onboarding individuals to when you are looking at onboarding a company like, like Intel? I think it's the same thing. It wasn't, I mean, Intel has a great vision. You know, Intel as a company really is one of the founding pillar companies of Silicon Valley itself. Of course, Silicon, Intel. But what's interesting is their evolution into AI. They're one of the preeminent uh, investors in AI in the last you know, five years. But what was really good is, is the, the partners at Intel, the way that they engage with us, the thought process. And again, that was the determining factor that coupled with their vision. And I think, um, look, they can see that there's an opportunity to build a huge company. If you're sitting on the data that even Amazon have of thousands of brands and you're modeling all of that and you have the trust, the trust to allow automation to exist, it's a multi-billion dollar outcome. And, uh, you know, that's what we're shooting for. And that's what Intel's shooting for. So I think they're a company, you know, that's in an interesting space now on the investment side. Intel Capital has made some of the largest and, and highest volume of, of uh, AI investments in the recent years. Now, you were alluding to, you know, before on vision and the future. And so if you, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of take a metrics is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think it means that every single e-commerce seller or anyone trying to sell anything has an account with us because they want to know their metrics. They want to know what their, their data is. And we've got the database that can help every seller. And um, I think that's possible. Now, the output of that is hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions, billions of dollars of revenue. But it's really the aggregate scale. And I think there are companies in the next 10 years that are going to be like that. You know, if you and I tried to build the next Amazon, it would be really difficult. If you and I tried to build the next Facebook or Google, it'd be very difficult. But there are going to be billion dollar companies that are valued based on their data and artificial intelligence and automation. And, and you know, we, we think, you know, we're, we're one of those companies and, and, and that's exactly what we're doing. I mean, it, it's exciting. And when you look at the market size, there are 50 million businesses that are in our target addressable market globally. I mean, we have thousands of businesses. We don't have millions and we already have, you know, a, a path to being a public company in the next two to three years. So I think we're very early. We haven't, you know, as I say to our employees, we've, we've only just started this is the early innings. It's a sunrise industry. Uh, there's only about 15% of uh, retailers online. You know, we're going to see that increase as a rising tide. Um, but it's about scale. You know, what's exciting to me is, is scale in a way that Amazon doesn't because Amazon's trying to monetize the, the consumers. So would you say that, you know, what we've seen now with COVID, the way that it has accelerated the activity online and 
And I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable. Like e-commerce has been booming too. How would you say? Would you say that maybe because I mean you've been doing this since 2015 with Techmetrics, so I'm sure that you never foresee or were foreseeing an event like COVID. But I'm sure that perhaps COVID has accelerated maybe a little bit. You know, uh, where you guys were at, and also like perhaps getting closer to that uh, vision being realized. Would you say so? I think, yeah, I mean, there's just this overarching narrative where we've seen, you know, a step function and a lot of acceleration around e-commerce in general, but it hasn't been easy for brands. I mean, listen, you know, COVID hits, supply chain is really contracted. If you were selling on, on, on Amazon or you're selling on Walmart or even Shopify, you know, it was challenging. You know, Amazon limited only selling a certain type of products like, uh, you know, specific um you know essential goods for a certain period that was 2020 and then now in 2021 and 2022 we're still dealing with the supply chain issues it's about 90 percent more than it was this time last year to ship a 40-foot container around the world so there is this huge supply chain impact so you know what's it for us and it's one of our core values is to be customer obsessed our customers the brands have had a pretty tough time. It's our responsibility to help them. I think, you know, there are people at the root level, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, the big tech companies, maybe transaction uh, transaction companies, you know, that, that they've done really well. Big tech's done really well. A lot of the brands have, have, have struggled um, and, you know, we're helping them, we're growing, we're flexing with them. Big picture though, you're right. I mean, this has been an accelerant. What I think is happening is uh, the volume, you know, GMV, merchandise volume, is is shifting. Uh, we've actually seen Amazon have less market share. I mean, it's gone up, but as a percentage, it's it's less. So people are buying from other channels. We're seeing emerging channels like TikTok, Instagram, with Meta's changes, perhaps has more of an incentive to be an e-commerce company. We see Amazon becoming more of an ads company for the first time last week. They released on their earnings call, you know, a, a you know nine billion dollar revenue line, which was the ads product, which is you know a big part of what we do. So you know, there's a lot of change, and a lot of it relates to big tech and you know where do people buy, and that's in the U.S., in Asia with Taobao, Tmall, you know, Flipkart in India, Mercado Libre South America. It's 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 really it's on it's it's evolving, and and it's happening at a really fast fast speed. That's definitely definitely exciting. Now, I'm sure that, you know, for you, I mean, it, it has been an incredible entrepreneurial journey. You know, everything from from coming to the U.S. with 800 bucks and doing the studies to now being on your third uh, business. And you've, you've been part of uh, successful events, part of learning, you know, events during this journey. So I guess if you had the opportunity, let's say I, I was to put you into a time machine and bring you back in time and maybe bring you to that moment where you were in Harvard and, and thinking about like building something. If you had the opportunity of chatting with that younger self and give mm. your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Hmm. That's, a, that's one of those really good ones. I mean, I, I'd like to, I'm not going to cop out of the question, but I think, you know, life sometimes just you know, sort of no no regrets mindset in a way some of the learnings become I mean maybe I'll just go with that and tell you because actually the struggles of sleeping in the office, 
and and um, struggling as a seller was actually the genesis of taking metrics. I was like, look, if I failed in these ways and I had a Harvard degree, what about the person that's trying to sell X product who may be a product person or may have some amazing inventory? I think, you know, actually it's more about, you know, life and business is a journey and to, to perhaps not be so focused on the short term and think about the, the bigger picture. You know, actually it's full circle right now because we've got these incredible AI engineers and and, and, and data scientists and the one thing that they don't have is they didn't sleep in the office. They didn't deal with those problems. And it's really important that we go back there and try and uh, embody that customer obsession. And I just don't think I could have done that if I had some of those problems. I think it's, you know, I suppose it's be patient and, and try and learn as much as possible. And uh, hopefully that's a, a not, not giving up on your question. I, I really do believe that though. Well, then that gives the opportunity to ask you a bonus one, especially for the entrepreneurs that are listening. What, what do you think kept you going when you were sleeping in your office? That's a, a really deep question. I, I honestly think it's, you know, you've got a finite amount of time in, in this world. And it's like, you know, you, you should maximize your opportunity. And actually, America has been so good to me, you know, coming with nothing. And it's just all been upside. So, you know, worst case scenario, what is the worst case scenario at the end of the day? And uh, I think I, I think that's, you know, you and I are immigrants, right? And there's an advantage there because of that. It's, you know, we're, we're just very fortunate. And, and you know, I, uh, I, I think that's a competitive advantage that immigrants in the U.S. may have because it is one of the best places in the world. If uh, I believe it's the best place in the world to start something, fail, pick yourself up. And, um, you know, you've got that culture of, of just pick yourself up and go for it again and just never give up. So I just love that feeling. I just love that opportunity. And, you know, you've got a finite amount of time. So why not just go for it? I love it. So I love there for the people that are listening. What is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, just find me on LinkedIn. You know, that's probably my uh, most active. Well, it is my most active channel. So, you know, add me on LinkedIn. Uh, I mean, I'd, have, I'd be happy to chat about anything entrepreneurship, anything to do with any anything we've just talked about, or if I can help with anything. Thank you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today, Alasdair. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.